0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, Dr. Salazar, thank you for the kind introduction and the members of this. Uh, that's yours. That's my. Oh, <laughs> now I have something this to speak terrible. about. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for having me here today. Um, I'm fairly confident that this is the first Graham Round's talk, maybe anywhere, for which watching Toy Story is a prerequisite. <laughs> uh, and um, I'm also very aware that I'm kind of a bit of a fish out of water in your world, um, and an unconventional choice for a for a grand rounds talk. Uh, that actually makes me even more appreciative of this uh, opportunity, and I really hope to make the most of it for you. My journey here actually began um, over a year ago. It was January 2017, and. I received an email um, out of the blue from Tom Murray. And he says, I read your book, and uh, I teach pediatric residents. And I really like what you wrote about the middle way and meditation. And I think that could help us in the, in the challenge of burnout in the medical profession. So I wrote him back and said, you do realize I know nothing about the medical profession. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been a patient, <laughs> but but, uh, but that's about it. But that email exchange began an unbelievably rich dialogue uh, in which Tom invited his friend Todd Kasesi, and then later on we were joined by Arabella Simkin, who's also here uh, today. And I would characterize that dialogue as an excursion into the interconnection between the challenges of burnout in the medical profession and Indo-Tibetan methods of developing the mind and, and, and meditation. And I consider this talk here today really just the next step in that dialogue. And what I hope to do is share many of the things that we've talked about and also look forward to possible next steps of of where we can take this. During the time of this exchange with uh, Tom and Todd and, and Arabella, I read kind of like a small library of articles on this challenge of burnout in the medical profession. And I have a handout today that some of you may have, but it's available afterwards. Um, and in that handout, I've cited a number of sources that support some of the things that, that I'm talking about today. But no matter which articles you look at, the numbers are come across as kind of staggering. And I started to read these in sort of disbelief. And I would write Tom and say, are you sure these numbers are right? It just doesn't make sense that this could be such a deep problem. Regardless of where you look, you see something like 25% or 50% or 70% of physicians and healthcare providers are experiencing symptoms of burnout or sort of depressive symptomatology. One of those articles especially moved me, and I'm going to quote it. It's actually from this book. This is called Also Human, The Inner Lives of Doctors. It's a very new book. It's actually not available in the United States yet, uh, but it was published in Britain a couple of months ago with the help of Amazon, they managed to fly it over to, to California <laughs> for, me to, for me to read it. But um, it says, and this is a quote from that book, it says, two junior, it says um, two junior doctors, our psychologist, Jenny Firth-Cousins, if something could be done about the stress and depression that they saw all around them. Two first-year doctors in one hospital had killed themselves in the previous month, yet no senior clinicians discussed this within their teams. It was unmentionable. What really struck me about this particular quote was actually two words in that paragraph that I omitted when, when I just read it. And it's the first two words. That paragraph actually begins in 1983. It says, in 1983, two junior doctors, and then it goes on. This really struck me. I was like, it has been 35 years. For 35 years, it appears, there's been some kind of discussion of an epidemic of burnout uh, um, in the practice of medicine. And it seems that despite attempts to alleviate it, very little has actually worked or been successful. So in lawyer's terms, I think we can say that we're on safe ground by saying we can stipulate (laughs) to burnout in medicine as being a longstanding and intractable and virtually a tragic problem. Well, long-standing and intractable problems are what appeal to Silicon Valley startup people. <laughs> uh, and so I started thinking think to myself, um, what would I do if I were launching a company to address this problem? And I came up with three questions, three issues that would need to be addressed in order to take on this problem. And those three will be my themes for today's talk. Those three are, first, that the narrative of medicine is out of sync with the realities of medicine. Uh, the second is that physicians and healthcare providers in general spend far too little time on self-care. And the third would be that we have to work to change the system, but not wait to change ourselves. So those are the three themes that I'm going to focus on today. But before I get to those, I thought I would step back a little bit and share a little bit about my own story and what brought me here today, and how this relates to what I'm going to have to say about those those three topics. So I started out my career as a lawyer, went to Harvard Law School, a little north of here, uh, and I. I was practicing law after I graduated. I was on the East Coast. And I kind of, but after a couple of years of that, I sort of crashed. I just didn't like what I was doing at all. And I was just kind of like, gosh, I've been through all this education and all this training. And here I am. And I don't um, like anything about it. I need to make a change. So at that time, I, my wife and I, we had a one-year-old baby. I'd been out of school a couple of years. And we went west, basically, to Silicon Valley. Uh, we didn't know anybody in Silicon Valley. We didn't uh, have any friends or family there or anything like that. And I landed at what is still Silicon Valley's largest law firm and I developed what was uh, the very first what they call technology transactions practice in the world. And so that's a practice that focuses on companies that need advice um, that are developing new technologies. And now actually every law firm pretty much around has that kind of practice, but that was the very first one um, that we created over there. Uh, that got me immersed very strongly in the world of startups, and eventually I, I, I became a partner there, and um, a couple of years into that, I decided I didn't really want to beast anyone who was 20 years older than me, and so I decided to change tracks again, uh, and I went to work for one of my clients and uh, became, eventually became their chief financial officer, and um, took that company publicly. that company was called Electronics for Imaging, and that took me to around 1994, when I was sitting in my office one day, and my phone rang, and those were the days, by the way, when phones with these boxes that sat <laughs> on the desk, <laughs> and, and picked it up. So, uh, so I picked up the phone, and on the other end of the line, this is what I hear, uh, hi, this is Steve Jobs. I saw your picture in the magazine a couple of years ago, and I thought we would work together someday. And I have this little company that I'd like to tell you about. Well, I thought uh, for those of you that know the history of, of Steve Jobs, when he was fired from Apple in 1986, he went on to form a new computer company that was called Next Computer. Next was well known as the sort of Steve Jobs' revenge against Apple company, and uh, Next had sort of famously flamed out. And I thought, well, he wants me to help him turn around next. And then he said, the company is called Pixar. And inside, I went, I don't know anything about Pixar. I never even heard of Pixar. Outside, I said, sure, I'd love to learn more about it. <laughs> you would think that a call from the great Steve Jobs to go run the business of the great Pixar was a really great event. But in 1994, it wasn't. Um, Steve, at that point, was probably at the lowest point of his career. He had been written off uh, as the guy who founded Apple but could never do anything else. Almost 10 years had gone by and he'd had no successes. And Pixar didn't fare any better at all. Uh, and so Pixar, as I found out, was this little graphics company uh, that was sort of known as the little company that couldn't. <laughs> uh, and so I did uh, end up going to work for Pixar. Uh, and you have to be a little naive or crazy to do uh, to join any startup. Uh, but I did go to join Pixar. And six weeks after I uh, arrived at Pixar, I came home. And I told my wife I had made the biggest mistake of my career, uh, which sounds funny now. But at that moment in time, it's old um, feels all too true. And the reason for that was because uh, there were several reasons. I discovered that Pixar had an incredibly toxic relationship with Steve Jobs, that was its owner. Uh, I discovered that it had absolutely no cohesive vision, story, or strategy uh, whatsoever, and it was bleeding money. It had burned through fifty million dollars of money and had uh, of cash and had nothing to show for it. And Steve was paying for the sort of monthly or weekly payroll out of his personal checkbook. Uh, which even if you don't know much about Silicon Valley, I can tell you that's not a good thing. Uh, So 12 years later, we sold Pixar to the Walt Disney Company for $7.6 billion, and that value continued to climb up to $15 or $20 billion after that. And I'm often asked, how did Pixar do it? You know, How did you do it over and over again? Pixar had 19 hit films in a row. It's virtually unheard of. Um, And I'll share a couple of clues about that, because I think they relate to the the topic um, we're here to talk about today. I I am going to bring animated films back to the world of physician burnout (laughs) uh, sometime here soon. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that Pixar did um, was it changed its narrative. It became an entertainment company. Now, you may be sitting here thinking that it never occurred to you that Pixar was anything other than an entertainment company. But it was not an entertainment company when I walked into it in 1994. It was a small graphics company that had been founded by George Lucas to make computer graphics for Star Wars. Uh, And that's how it thought of itself. Nobody in or outside of Pixar thought of it as an entertainment company. In 1994, if you wanted to create an entertainment company, I would have been the last person that you would have hired to do it, because I knew nothing about the entertainment business. When I realized that Pixar might in fact have to become an entertainment company, I did the only thing that I could think of at the time, which is I went to the library <laughs> and I took out a book called Entertainment Industry Economics, which is now on its 14th edition and I know the author well, but I read this book cover to cover. It is the dry it's like right up there with medical textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> dry, all uh, grass, like nothing interesting about it whatsoever. Um, but I did learn one thing uh, when I read that book, which was that becoming an entertainment company was a terrible idea. Uh, no company in history had succeeded in becoming an independent animated feature film company. It didn't exist. Not even Walt Disney could make it happen, and that's why Walt Disney had basically almost gone bankrupt trying to make it an animation, and then he went into um, films and television, and then he bought a piece of land in Southern California, the Disneyland, that's the one, yeah. Uh, in order to try to diversify his business and get away from animated feature films because they they weren't making any money. But I also know that you can't change or build a company unless you change your narrative, unless you have something to go for. And for a variety of reasons, that was Pixar's only shot. And if you only have one shot at something, you've got to take it. And in the world of um, startups and Silicon Valley culture, there is no hedging your bets. there's not enough resources to do it. You have to take your shot and put everything behind it. So we changed Pixar's story, and we changed Pixar into an entertainment company. Steve and I actually started to learn what that meant. We would shuttle back and forth to Hollywood so we could figure out what it meant, and we built an entirely new narrative for what what Pixar was gonna become. So that was one of the secrets. Another of the secrets to Pixar is what I would sort of generally call culture. I think that culture is the unsung hero of excellence. We are um, very good at sort of anointing heroes. And so you might look at Pixar or any other company and say, wow, they have these amazing storytellers. Or uh, you might look at Apple and see, wow, you know, Steve Jobs is inventing all these products. But my experience of startups is that it's never, ever one person, uh, and that what happens is that you have these extraordinary tensions that are competing against each other, that are pulling each other apart. And the only thing that draws these tensions together is culture. Uh, it's the way that people work together. So an example of this in Pixar's case is if you have storytellers that want to tell a story, um, uh, they and then, and then you have technology people that are responsible for sort of creating the graphics for the story, they live in constant tension with each other. Uh, you know, a, a small example of this might be the end of the. the well, you've all obviously watched Toy Story. So um, uh, at the end of Toy Story, there's a really big outdoor scene with Woody and Buzz. Isn't it great talking about Woody and Buzz in a Grand Rounds <laughs> talk? This is <just> like. <laughs> um, so there's a big. I've got to relate this somehow to the topic, though. But anyway, there's, <laughs> there's a. Um, uh, Um, a big outdoor scene at the end of the film when Woody and Buzz have to chase the movie truck. And nobody had ever done an outdoor scene in computer graphics before, uh, in computer animation. So the creative people go, we need the outdoor scene. We need sky, and we need trees, and we need cars. Everything is outdoors. The technology people say, well, we can give you sky, and we can give you roads. No cars, no trees. (laughs) Uh, Like, well, we can't have the grand finale of Toy Story be like a carless, treeless uh, set. And so they have to work this out and compromise. If you do watch the end of Toy Story, I'm sure you've already noticed that there are cars and there are trees and there are leaves on those trees, but those leaves do not move. Uh, They're (laughs) completely static leaves. That was as far as the technology people would take it. Um, Then another tension that comes into the system was the sort of business tension. And so that would sort of come from me like, we have to make money at this somehow. And so we need to make more films. We need to make films quicker and more often. And so you have these tensions pulling against each other. And the question is, how do you resolve these tensions? And Pixar had a remarkable, what I would call, a talking culture. It was a talking company, uh, which meant that people were in constant communication with each other, understanding their respective points of view. And it was that process that enabled Pixar to really resolve the tensions that it needed to, to, to do great work. And in fact my entire relationship with Steve was really a a giant sort of collaboration. We had a tremendous friendship, trust and sort of partnership and we would, were would trying to take this company to a place it hadn't been before. And so we would talk about it literally like morning, noon, and night. You know, like the phone would ring in the morning, we would talk about it. And then, and then, and then at lunchtime, we would talk about it. On the weekends or evenings, we would go around sort of, you know, walking and, and talking. And we were exploring, you know, what does it mean? To, to How do we, what's the strategy we need for this company? One example would be, uh, you'll notice Pixar has only ever made animated feature films, you've never seen a live action film you know, that has come out of Pixar. This is very deliberate. Uh, we spent a long time debating whether Pixar should make live action films, and we would just change our position. One week I would be, yeah, we should, and the next week, no, uh, we shouldn't, and then he would be doing that. And through this process of debate, we would come to answers. And the answer in that particular case was uh, that we did not go into live-action films because we concluded that both animated feature films and live-action films were just terrible businesses, and that neither one was going to help the other. So we might as well just pick one terrible business and <laughs> try, to, try to make it work in that. So. But that, that principle of collaboration and working together and having a dialogue that um, is very productive um, is a very important one. And for all that's written and said about Steve, I think one thing that is less known about him is that he was much more interested in getting to the right answer than being right. <laughs> And there's an enormous difference to that. He had very strong opinions, to be sure, and he held those opinions sometimes with a religious conviction. Um, but I was never one that was moved by conviction alone. And so conviction, to me, is not a compelling argument. And so I would just be like, no, let's get to the real arguments and and um, and figure out what, what we need to do. So uh, So those are some of the ways that Pixar sort of managed to build the right kind of corporate culture to do what it did, but then I kind of gave up that whole thing. Uh, And I left to go on a journey, basically, to study Eastern philosophy and meditation. And I did that not because I wasn't happy or didn't like what I was doing. It was that I observed uh, shortcomings in the sort of corporate life, corporate world. I found that corporate life essentially was very one-dimensional and it was focused on what I would call performance at all costs. So when you're driven exclusively towards performance or acquisition uh, at all costs, then you attain great productivity. And I saw a lot of great productivity all around me. But I also noticed there were a lot of hidden costs in gaining that productivity. And those hidden costs took the form of very high levels of stress high levels of anxiety. Uh, Life is sort of lived as a race, uh, um, in a way. Uh, And the correlate to that, I saw low levels of meaning, uh, low levels of self-worth, and even low levels of joy and fun. I mean, work isn't necessarily all joy and fun, but there should be some of it, uh, at least. And I also observed a lot of what I call technology angst that we were moving into an era in which technology was controlling us rather than the other way around, and that we were forgetting how to disconnect from technology. And this was taking a toll on our on our psyches. So I had a sort of a passion to explore and discover what the antidote to, to that might be. Um, uh, and I was drawn very much to Eastern philosophy and meditation, particularly Buddhist philosophy and meditation, because I saw in it what I would call a sort of exquisite philosophy of the mind. Uh, the central tenet of that, um, of that body of work is that the mind, it, the mind whatever we call the mind, uh, is the medium of experience. And so if we want to change our experience, we've got to work with our minds. And there's not much other way to get there. It wasn't easy for me to discover that world. Uh, I was reading these books that were written over the last 2,000 years by these incredible meditation masters and teachers, uh, and I found that there was an enormous cultural divide between you know them and, and me, a sort of modern Silicon Valley guy, and I came close to giving up on that exploration. But I did eventually pry the door open by, after a couple of years, finding a teacher that could actually show me what that world was all about. And when I did, I found something in there that, to me at least, was very beautiful, very exquisite. And the vision of that world is actually quite simple. It's that outer mastery. And by outer mastery, I mean sort of the expansion of our material world, our outer, the things that we do outwardly. That outer mastery isn't enough. By itself, it isn't enough. We have to balance outer mastery with what I would call its corollary inner mastery by which I mean expansion of our inner experience, expansion of our minds. And the key elements to doing that are two, um, I would at least call them in meditation and this philosophy called the middle way. And we read a lot and hear a lot about meditation, but at its highest level, I would characterize meditation as just a space in our lives to cultivate our inner life and qualities. That's it. The Tibetan word for meditation is often translated as familiarity. Uh, and it stands for the idea that meditation is about familiarizing the mind with positive states of mind. And the principle is very simple, which is that the mind is a creature of habit, it's a conditioned organ, uh, uh, whether we call it the brain or whatever we call it, um, and it responds to habit. So you have to expose it to states, positive states, in order for it to. Experience positive states, and the middle way. This is like basically a, a philosophy of harmony. It's basically a philosophy that says when we're stuck in any kind of extreme misery or suffering or hardship, we'll follow. And I like to use this example to illustrate uh, um, the middle way. Um, the way to, it's a way to understand it a little bit, and it goes like this. It's like the middle way would say that there are two people inside of us. One person is a bureaucrat. And the the goal of the bureaucrat is to get things done. You know, wake up in time in the morning, and make sure there's enough money in the bank, enough food in the refrigerator, patients get seen on time, everything, that the trains are running on time. Um, And the other person inside of us is an artist or a free spirit. And the free spirit doesn't care about anything else other than to feel alive, to feel joy, to feel creative, to feel in touch with the world and people around us. And the middle way would say that if we get stuck in either one of those places, we will um, endure some kind of hardship. If life is all about being a bureaucrat, if the only thing we care about, worry about, focus upon is getting things done and accomplishing things, we will accomplish a lot of things. And we'll we'll accumulate a bunch of trophies, so to speak. But we may one day wake up and wonder, did we ever truly live? And if life is all on the other side, creative artistry, you know, smelling the roses, we might smell the roses, but we will one day wake up and sort of feel frustrated for lack of momentum in our lives. Um, when I joined Pixar in 1994, this is precisely where I found it. Pixar was a starving artist. Unbelievable artistry and creativity, but no momentum. And everyone in Pixar was frustrated because of that. What we really did at Pixar was bring enough of the other side, enough administration, enough bureaucracy, enough strategy, and surround the creativity with that to give it momentum without killing the, the, the creative spirit. So I went on to co-found the Juniper Foundation, uh, which is a foundation designed to bring these ideas into contemporary life. And that brings me to this problem of burnout in medicine and how these all these ideas would apply to that. So the first of the principles that I mentioned is that the narrative of medicine is out of sync with the realities of medicine. So this is the... Is it, okay. <laughs> I guess I'm done. That was it. You <laughs> can figure out that. Um, The narrative of medicine is out of sync with the realities of medicine. What does that mean? Why is it important? The central tenet of the middle way is that We suffer when our narrative is out of sync with the way things are. When we're holding something in our minds that keeps butting up against what reality really is. So it's an exploration into what is your narrative and how is it out of sync and is it out of sync? So I, in all this work in the last year, came up with four elements that struck me in the field of medicine that are out of sync with with the realities of medicine. The first of those is what I would call the narrative of perfectionism, or the narrative of infallibility. This is a strong current through almost everything that I read, that there's a tremendous pressure for people in the healthcare field to be right uh, and to carry the burden of perfectionism. And the burden of perfectionism almost always leads to the burden of perfectionism almost always leads to misery because it's a constant pressure and a fear of failure. And it's very hard to work under that, kind of, uh, under that kind of pressure. The reason it's out of sync with reality is because perfectionism is never a reachable standard. Uh, Dr. David Burns, out of, who, was, who wrote the book Feeling Good in 1980, who was a clinical professor of medicine and psychiatry at Stanford University, in that book Feeling Good, he says, Perfection is man's ultimate illusion. It simply doesn't exist in the universe. There is no perfection. It's really the world's greatest con game. It promises riches and delivers misery. Uh, And so if you are trafficking in a story of perfectionism, it is out of sync with with reality. A second story or second narrative um, that I think is out of sync is what I would call the narrative of IQ over EQ. So that narrative says that intelligence, cognitive intelligence, knowledge, uh, is paramount over emotional intelligence or ability to handle emotional situations. And a lot of what I read, I saw that EQ, emotional intelligence, is kind of an in thing. Medical schools seem to be interested in bringing in students who have higher levels of EQ, however that might be measured. But what I also observed is very little evidence that that has crept into the practice of medicine. So they may be paying lip service to it in the medical schools, but I think when you come into the the hospitals and the and the places where medicine is practiced, it isn't happening very much at all. It seems to me that physicians actually have very few tools to cope with emotional suffering um, at all. There was a study of anesthesiologists, and these studies are quoted in the handout, um, who had lost. Um, patients in the operating room, and that that, uh, study said that psychological recovery often takes weeks or months and is hampered by lack of emotional and professional support. And in the Journal of the American Medical Association, an article on resident depression a couple of years ago said, the profession purportedly recognizes the importance of health and wellness, but the value system of the current training environment makes clear to residents the unacceptability of expressing vulnerability in the face of overwhelming emotional and physical demands. So this emphasis of IQ over EQ, which is the narrative, is out of sync with reality because it turns out, and I discovered this through all this reading, that physicians are humans. (laughs) Uh, And this turns out to be a a very large insight. (laughs) I'll talk more about that in a moment. The third of these narratives I would call the narrative of certainty, or the narrative of discomfort with uncertainty, doctors' traffic and being right. It seems to me differential diagnosis demands an answer. And this is out of sync with with reality because we're living in an age of gray. Arabella Simkin who's here today, has done a lot of writing on this topic. Last year the New England Journal of Medicine, she wrote, So often we focus on transforming a patient's grayscale narrative into a black and white diagnosis that can be neatly categorized and labeled. And the challenge with this is that I believe physicians are going to be moving more and more into the area of uncertainty, because technology is going to do more and more of the black and white. It is already, and it will continue to take it over. And we're going to be left with a lot of probabilities. Uh, genetic testing or blood testing and this and that are going to produce probabilities, not certainties. Quality of life considerations are going to become more and more paramount as we become more and more able just to keep people alive, keep people going, um, without consideration necessarily of whether that's good for them. Uh, so I think in the field of medicine, uncertainty is going to become the new certainty and if there's a narrative of certainty is there, it's not going to work very well. And the last of these um, narratives, in some ways maybe the most distressing, is what I call the narrative of individuality. This one really surprised me. I came to conclude that, um, that physicians, people in healthcare, might as well be wearing spacesuits when they are in their um, hospital settings. There doesn't seem to be any culture of mutual support or empathy or collaboration. And I'm going to ask a couple of rhetorical questions, so you don't have to respond to these. I'm going to guess what the answers are. Um, But my first rhetorical question would, would be to ask, how many of you believe that the problem of burnout is rampant in your institution, and that a significant percentage of people are suffering from symptoms of it? And I would say, if I asked that question, a very large number of hands would go up. My second question would be, Knowing that, how many of you have, on a regular basis, reached out to check or help a colleague that might be struggling with it? Uh, And my guess is, without knowing, that far fewer hands uh, would go up in response to that. And if there were a singular theme to all of these narratives, I would call that theme the, the difference between a performance narrative and a human narrative. A performance narrative traffics in these kinds of ideas of perfectionism, IQ, certainty, and individuality. I'm a pod, a bubble into myself, and what I have to do is perform. I have to meet these standards. I have to do well. I have to succeed. A human narrative traffics in the opposite. In a human narrative, we are allowed to be imperfect. We are allowed to be infallible. Uh, we are allowed to be emotional beings and have emotional responses. We understand that we live in a world of uncertainty, and we understand that we need each other and i 'll finish this section by just presenting a little thought experiment or meditation perhaps that well, actually you could actually do this as a meditation, <laughs> but the thought experiment would be to consider the difference between these two phrases: uh, The first phrase is. I am a doctor. And the second phrase is, I am a human being who works in the field of medicine. Hmm. Um, I think if you meditate or contemplate that idea, you will see that when you associate the I, when you say, I am a doctor, what comes up is this performance narrative, because associated, the narrative associated with that is all of those performance things that I've talked about. I think if you say I am a human being uh, who works in the field of medicine, you will see that it opens up a whole world of possibilities for how you might for how you might be. But there's a tremendous article on this, uh, which I don't have time to quote from now, in the New England Journal of Medicine last year by Dr. Adam Hill. I did I did put it in uh, in in the handout. Um, by the way, when you're done with that particular um, thought experiment, another one, if you feel like it, would be the difference between these two phrases. The first is, she is a patient. And the second would be, she is a human being who is suffering. And Again, I think that uh, will open up different perspectives on seeing things. So the question is, if we want to change our narrative, how do we do it? Uh, we can't just snap our fingers like that and just change how we perceive and see and act in the world. And so that brings me to the second point which is that physicians spend far too little time on self-care. How do we move to a healthier narrative? How do we move to a healthier way of being? And one thing about that is that there is no magic wand. There is no quick fix to this. I see all kinds of institutions they look at this problem and they go, Oh, we should do a little meditation, we should do a little yoga. So on Thursday night we'll have a meditation class. Uh, I call that checkbox meditation. <laughs> okay, I've I've onto my yoga check. I've got my meditation class check. This is like throwing a bucket of water onto a forest fire. Uh, um, it's just paying lip service to a problem that is in actual fact much deeper. And my years of, of studying this topic has you know, sort of suggested to me that self-care has to be a continuous habit of self-nurturing and mutual support. There's no way, uh, other way to do it. It has to be continuous. It has to include self-nurturing, and it has to have a, um, a system of mutual support. It's like food or exercise. We have to nourish ourselves regularly, or we will starve. And if we're not doing that, then it's no surprise sometimes that the burnout is the result. And I consider there to be three elements to that practice: meditation, learning, and connection. So meditation, I know to some people meditation seems like this weird thing that people do on mountaintops and, and, and such. But it's not I mean at first it may seem a little weird, but but it really is not. You the best way to think of meditation, it's just a contemplative practice um, in which to Take care of yourself inwardly. That's it. Um, it's a space for self-nurturing. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it does have to be pretty regular. I mean, it's a practice that can be done in five or 10 minutes a day. But it really is quite a powerful and helpful practice. The second part of this is learning. We have to, If we are to change our narrative, it's like Steve and I back at Pixar. If we were to change Pixar's narrative, we have to learn what it means to be an entertainment company. It took quite some time to do that. It's the same here. If you want to change a narrative, you have to learn about what the elements of a new narrative might be. So what is peace of mind? What does it mean to be compassionate and kind? What does emotional harmony look like? What does it mean to set limits and say no in your life? These are things that um, often are not obvious to us, and so we have to learn these things. And the last part of this is connection. Uh, We must have a nurturing, supportive community in order to change and transform in the ways that that I'm talking about. In a book on depression uh, from this year by Johan Hari, he writes, the more you think happiness is a social thing, the better off you are. The evidence suggests if we return to seeing our distress and our joy as something we share with a network of people all around us, we will feel different. And in an article that was just sent to me this week, on a study by Blue Cross and Blue Shield finding high, um, increasing incidences of depression in basically every demographic cohort, a psychologist from the uh, Texas Children's Hospital wrote, if you don't have a community to reach out to, then your hopelessness doesn't have any place to go. So the, long, the short of that is we do not do well in isolation as, as human beings. Um, and I'm utterly convinced that there's no way through this problem of burnout if we don't help each other through it. That's why a meditation class or a yoga class on a Thursday night isn't going to do it. It's, it's not enough. And so, um, so those are those three elements, the meditate, learn, and connect. Which brings me to the last of these points, that we must work to change the system but not wait to change ourselves. The system is obvious, and by the system, I mean the sort of whole corporate medical complex of hospitals, insurance companies, government, the whole thing. The system is obviously a co-conspirator in this problem that we're talking about here today. But I can tell you it is a co-conspirator everywhere. I was writing and speaking about these problems long before I knew about the problem of burnout in medicine. It It is a byproduct of a sort of corporate performance-driven culture that spreads toxicity everywhere. And we have to change the system to make it more human. And a lot of my life is sort of dedicated to trying to make that happen. We have to make the system look at the people within it and remember that there are human beings there that are enduring difficulties and hardships. But there is danger in blaming the system for everything. We don't need to change the system to value self-care and to do something about it. We don't need to change the system to be a friend to a colleague. And we don't need to change the system to see ourselves and everyone around us as human beings first and physicians, nurses, colleagues second. The more that I have examined this problem, the more convinced I am that burnout is not a weakness, or a failing, or a shortcoming. It is a healthy response to an insane world. It is no different than a patient who has a bacterial infection getting a fever. You don't look at the patient and say, whoa, they can't hack that infection. They got a fever. (laughs) You are like, no, that's what happens when you get a bacterial infection. You get fever. Well, what happens when you're immersed in a toxic system day in and day out is you get burned. And it's just a sign that says my needs as a human being are not being met. That's what it is. And so if I were to start a startup in order to address this problem, here's what that startup would do. It would teach physicians and healthcare providers how to change the narrative of what it means to be a doctor, to traffic less in perfectionism and certainty and traffic more in emotional intelligence, uncertainty, and especially mutual support and and community. It would facilitate what I would call something like self-nurturing support pods. Mm -hmm. Small groups of people that collaborate together and enjoy something else other than talking about, you know, um, patient problems. Those, that something else would take the form of meditation, learning, and just the spirit of helping and being with each other. And it would initiate a collaboration with hospitals and the medical system with ideas on changing that system to make life better for those within it. I think the goal of that startup would be to aim for a new era of medicine. 35 years is too long to have a burnout epidemic within a single profession. And I would say it's time to restore the spirit of joy and humanity in one of the world's oldest and most noble professions. And for all the sacrifices that all of you have made to be part of that profession, would say that you are entitled to nothing less thank you very much for having